Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. I just want everyone to experience the joy of liberating their minds. You know, just because those of us who are quote unquote awake have come to see our former indoctrination and are able to see through the propaganda now doesn't mean that we aren't susceptible to, you know, those cognitive biases. That was Margaret Anna Alice. And I will be right back with our excellent conversation after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. As I've documented on this podcast and as a guest elsewhere, I was once a prominent quote unquote left activist before eventually moving on by mutual decree. I've since been embraced by what might be called the right, only to find that in many ways it was a mirror image of the radical left that I knew. For example, preaching to the converted, infighting, high school like tactics, virtue signaling, groupthink, confirmation bias the silencing of questioners, thought policing, and paranoia. What I've seen is that people all across the ideological spectrum believe that they are the truth teller who is so effective that the cabal must specifically bring them down. And we've reached the point now in this so-called medical freedom truth movement that we have dissident medical professionals clogging up Zoom with nonstop conferences, some of which have already reached the third annual stage. So across the spectrum, the true believers are left wondering when and if the sheeple or the good Germans or whatever they call them will ever wake up. So with all that as preface, I want to bring in my guest, Margaret Anna Alice. Welcome to Post Woke. Thank you, Mickey. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, So having said all I said, I just want to clarify to you and the listeners, it's not about confrontation, because I'm not sure where you stand anyway. I am genuinely interested if and how our activist experiences might differ. So just I'm, I'm guessing that a big chunk of my listeners are familiar with you. But I just want to start with this as a question. What were you doing 
leading up to March 2020 and what led you to your Substack page and its large and sustained readership? Okay. Um, so I never really considered myself an activist, um, especially before March 2020. Um, I have always thought of myself as a writer, and so I've, and I've always been interested in a broad spectrum of disciplines, um, politics, psychology, um, literature, lots of dystopian fiction, things like that, and um, neurology, uh, neuropsychology. And so pretty much um, all of the topics that I just naturally gravitated toward throughout my life as a reader and a writer um, converged in March 2020. And it became, and because I've always been interested in propaganda and mass control and psychological manipulation, it was quite evident for me, to me from the outset, that this was a manufactured crisis. And so I was initially just kind of attempting to reach out to people I knew. Um, you know, I was using nextdoor.com and connecting with, you know, people in my community and trying to expose what were, to me, were very obvious lies and attempts at coercion. And, um, you know, pretty quickly began seeing that it was almost impossible to communicate because almost any time I would share a link to, you know, a a scientist or a physician or some kind of documentation that countered the mainstream narrative that was all in lockstep, my comments would get deleted. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I think, in April of 2021 that I was writing a comment in response to a Nextdoor post. And it basically just said, these masks are not about health, they're all about control. And by the time I finished writing my comment, the post had been disappeared. <laughs> and so that is essentially what prompted me to start my Substack. And I just wanted a place to share my writing where I wouldn't have to worry about being censored. And I didn't really expect that much to come out of it. Um, but my husband encouraged me to submit my article to Off Guardian. So my first article was called A Primer for the Propagandized, Fear is the Mind Killer. And my audience just grew from there. I was really surprised at the overwhelming enthusiasm with which it was greeted. And um, I was just trying to formulate all of the things that were kind of swirling around in my head in terms of all of these, um, the divisive rhetoric, um, the fearfulness that was being sown and the counterintuitive quote unquote health recommendations that essentially contradicted everything that we previously understood regarding herd immunity and the inefficacy of masks for respiratory illnesses, things like that. So um, it just sort of blossomed from there. Okay. Um, and I could totally relate to that. There, I mean, thank heaven for Substack in the, uh, in general, but certainly during this situation. And there is a lot of solace to be found in, you know, having even just being heard. And I can relate to you where being shut down prior to being on Substack. And I was using um, Facebook, believe it or not. And, wow. and, and it was, it, it, you know, it, it was, 
sort of self-sabotage to stay on there at this point. So, <laughs> so the so the Off Guardian article helped to bring people over, and then mm-hmm. it blossomed. I mean, I would assume you're you're a good writer. You offer copious amounts of evidence. Like there, I've never seen anyone mm-hmm. embed, embed more links. I'm sure you've heard that a thousand times. But <laughs> I, I'm a fan of that because um, going back to a, a different time period, two of my much earlier books were alternative histories related to war propaganda, and they were very, very diligently um, mm-hmm. annotated because, for all the reasons that, that everyone listening would know, is that is that if you come on a podcast and say, all right, guys, you got to wear two masks, no one's going to ask you for evidence. But if you say anything to the contrary, they're going to squeeze you and not give you enough time and make you look like, you, like you're a lunatic. And it's very- exactly. They're so brilliant at at creating this. And so once you're on Substack and begin to build an audience, did did you feel as I did after some point that it was useful, but at some point you were, felt like maybe you were singing to the choir? Like and and then probably the people who disagreed with you were on some other site, maybe Facebook or Twitter at that point. And they were singing to their choir or being sung to by an eloquent voice like yours. And that creates even deeper schisms between the two sides. And if you, did you notice that? And and if so, how did you manage that? Mm, good question. Um, I actually did gradually come to realize that it was going to be almost impossible to get anyone who was on the other side of the debate to actually read my articles. Um, and so, you know, I, I started my letters series um, with a piece called Letter to a Covidian. And I know that term can come across as maybe dismissive of the people that I was trying to address. But I was, you know, of course, borrowed it from C.J. Hopkins. And for me, it wasn't necessarily about denigrating the people that I was trying to reach, but rather about showing them that they had their own values had become inverted and their compassion weaponized against them as part of this inculcation into this um, ideological compliance that essentially was causing them to turn against their neighbors. And instead of um, coming together, like typically occurs in a genuine crisis, the propagandists were turning them them tears against each other. And so I was trying to reach into that part of them that, you know, I told them to, in that letter, I'm telling them to reflect on, you know, go back to two years ago and ask what yourself from two years ago would think about the way you're behaving and you're thinking now. Um, And so to answer your question, um, even though I can't necessarily directly reach the people that I'm trying to talk to and wake up, um, my I feel like my work serves as essentially a tool. I have a wake-up toolkit um, that organizes all of my articles by topics. And really, it's something that I'm just creating for my readers who essentially are already awake, but they can then use that to help wake up people they know. 
And so it isn't necessarily that I'm reaching them directly, but my readers can use it for their own purposes. They can pull out the evidence. And like you said, I do extensively hyperlink practically every word of my articles. And that's because I'm not, I'm not going to sit down and just say, here's what I believe and this is what you should believe too. I am simply presenting the evidence that I have compiled and I link to it so people can then go and assess it and make their own decisions. I'm trying to empower people to be independent, critical thinkers, and not to just repeat or regurgitate a mantra like trust the science that the propagandists have pounded into their heads. So, um, and, and going back to kind of preaching to the choir, I wrote a piece maybe around a year ago called Letter to My Caress, where I realized um, I had spent, I have a number of pieces that are dialogues with people that I'm essentially debating on different platforms, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, um, who are on, you know, very entrenched in their views. And it became clear that presenting evidence and trying to argue rationally and um, show my perspective versus theirs was causing the backfire effect, which essentially caused them to dig their heels in deeper Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their point of view. And so I was realizing, you know, my role isn't necessarily to try and wake up people who don't want to be woken up because that's not going to work. What I am here partly for is to essentially inspire and galvanize the resistance and provide tools for my readers to do their good work in whatever form it takes. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, it's the wake up toolkit, right, that you have there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, I'm saying, talking to the listeners now, it, if there's an area related to the past three plus years, it's covered in there. And if you have people in your life demanding evidence, like I'm talking about tons of evidence, it is an incredible resource. And I do want to come back to, um, at, at some point in this conversation, I want to come back to, to your saying how someone in your position or mine can't directly reach a lot of the people we want to reach. I want to use that as a segue later. And I definitely want to come back in a minute to that. You're not telling people what to think, but I really like the, the phrase that uh, compassion is being weaponized because what you're, and then talking about asking people to put themselves in their mindset pre um, pandemic. And it reminds me of what um, people do to talk to folks who have, who have been drawn into a cult where people yes. say something like, how could you be so stupid to be in a cult? But quite often it's a very intelligent, compassionate person who mm-hmm. has, as you phrased, their compassion, their compassion weaponized. It's like they, they suddenly find this tunnel vision avenue where they can actually make a difference in the world, only they're being exploited. And I think, I don't think it's inaccurate to talk about what the um, mainstream narrative has done as being very cultic. So I'm glad that you, you highlight that because it's not about, it's recognizing that the folks we're disagreeing with in many cases have good intentions and are motivated by uh, emotions like compassion. It's, it's just that the more they're being pushed, suddenly you can't find any of that compassion in there. Um, but I, I do want to share something here. When you talked about how important it is to not tell people what to think, um, it reminds me of 
a TED talk by an author named Julia Galef. I think it's G-A-L-E-F. I think it's pronounced Galef. And she asks in that, in that, um, in that TED talk, she juxtaposes the soldier mentality which is protecting your viewpoint at all costs, mm-hmm. inquisitive outlook of a scout, which is motivated by exploration. And she asks, what do you most yearn for? Do you yearn to defend your own beliefs or do you yearn to see the world as clearly as you possibly can? So oh, I like that. How does that resonate with you and go in any direction you want from there? Mm, well, obviously I, I resonate with the, <laughs> just trying to have, clarity um, in terms of reality. And the propaganda that we've been bombarded with is essentially designed to um, invert our reality. You know, it's very Orwellian. It's very gas. It's employing gaslighting techniques and wielding our cognitive biases against us. And um, for me, partly, you know, what this whole exercise of doing my substack and doing writing has been an exploratory process and i'm i'm constantly absorbing new information i'm always um trying to get a broad spectrum of sources and i i view everything you know with a critical lens and don't necessarily accept something just because it comes from someone on quote unquote my side um one of the um, liberating uh, experiences that I've had, and I wrote about this in my two-year stackiversary piece, was essentially kind of recognizing my own cognitive biases and how my in-group and, uh, and out-group biases were affecting my interpretation of events. And so by simply being able to see those lenses even though I can't always control them, being aware of them helps me kind of see past that. And that's what I help try to help other people do as well. And um, so basically I realize I'm kind of liberated from those labels and I'm just trying to put together all these different pieces of evidence. And so, for example, the poem I published on New Year's Day mistakes were not made, an anthem for justice, um, just kind of poured out of me. And I had no idea it was going to have such a, an enormous impact and people were going to appreciate it so much. But for me, it was, it was like putting all these puzzle pieces together because um, I essentially ended up linking to almost everything that I had written at my Substack for the previous two years. And it formed a picture that just made perfect sense. And I think that's why people did resonate with it so deeply, particularly after Tess Laurie did such a powerful reading. And we released that video of it a couple of months later. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. Actually, let's go right into that poem. I, what, I, what I appreciated about it and what resonated with me was, was that you were um, poetically making clear that propaganda wasn't invented in March of 2020, and that the all the excuses and the classic um, mistakes were made. I mean, you could go back to Ronald Reagan in the 80s when um, the, the U.S. was funding the Contras in Central America. When he finally owned up to it, he used the passively phrase "mistakes were made." Yes, and um, that this this concept goes back 
probably further than we could even trace. And I really appreciate that. And it, it does give me a lot of solace and hope that you are gaining um, an audience by not um, just saying that this is my stance and I'm going to just tell you what you want to hear. And that to me is a source of hope because it, it really, really is, is so important to not just preach to the converted. Like you said, you didn't want to have a label. I, at this point, if I'm forced to label myself, I just say free agents. I'm assuming, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you don't call yourself right or left. What I Right. Okay. Exactly. And so, so I, I will, in the show notes, I'll link, of course, to your Substack. But we could talk after this as to what specific other links, like the poem and and the and the toolkit that we can put, okay. in, so that so that makes it even easier for people to click on it. But um, and I do want to quickly, as a co as a fellow Substacker, say I really appreciate you coming up with ways to link back to two years worth of work because it is one of it's. It's wonderful when you see your subscriber list increasing, but mm. then you do have this sense of like, oh, but I wrote some kick-ass stuff <laughs> like, like <laughs> 13, 14 months ago. How do I bring this back to say, hey, check this out? Like in my case, I don't write as much about specifically COVID, but I did. So I sometimes just make a post saying like catching up and I'll just have a link to masks lockdowns and just kind of say, I, I don't think I haven't tackled these topics. I just don't see a reason to bring it back. And I like how you did it creatively where someone who works their way through your links is also kind of working, is kind of backtracking on your personal journey through this material. Right, right. And I have appreciated your um, catch up posts, because I wasn't following you from the beginning of your sub stack. And so it introduced me to some pieces that I hadn't previously seen. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and that's not a dig at Substack. That's just, a, that's just the nature of social media where right. it's, you know, I could go back far enough that I wrote for magazines, hard copy, hold in your hands magazines. And when you would write an article for a monthly it would physically stay on a stand for 30 days. So that article, you got paid way more back then, first of all, but that <laughs> article had more sense of, of weight to it because you could, it could be released on August 1st and someone could wind up buying it August 20th off the newsstand. Today, something goes live and then within a matter of seconds is pushed down the news feed to the next thing and the next thing. And in, it, in, in my mind, it devalues um, the power of writing. And it also makes it difficult to create um, for people to get a grasp of say, I want to know what makes Morgan Anna Alice tick. And I need to know some context because this one post is just a snapshot of her and hers. And I appreciate that you bring people back on the journey and say, Hey, if you like what I wrote here, it here's a look at the process that got me to this point. Right. Right. So I want to go to now, you mentioned how that you're often depending on your subscribers to then go to your toolkit or anything that you link to and use that as a way of sharing. And you don't have any idea where the ripple effect is. But part of that is because what's happened strangely is that censorship has has transformed from sort of a left-wing issue to, for lack of a better phrase, a right-wing issue. Like the the in terms of complaining, uh, being censored, it seems like yes. we're happy with censoring now. Mm -hmm. which experience that used to be something we we uh, were adamantly against. So you have written on issues of free speech and censorship, and you shared with me an article that's going to go live in the relatively near future. So 
I'm going to just back off a little bit here and give you some space to talk about your state of mind, your work, what's coming up in the realm of talking about topics, big topics like censorship, free speech, and so on. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's quite obvious that, I mean, we've been seeing some extraordinary journalism coming out of people like Matt Taibbi and, you know, Michael Schellenberger, and they're exposing the censorship industrial complex. And so we are essentially seeing, as you, as you noted, we've seen this reversal where in the past, the left was previously very pro-free speech, anti-censorship. And now that's completely reversed. And I, my suspicion, Obviously, it's because their side is in power and they are protecting their hegemony. Um, so it's no longer about speaking truth to power and all the things that um, they claim to be about in the past. And we talked a little bit about Noam Chomsky being an example of that. Um, he was this beacon of defending the classical liberal principle of free speech, where you essentially say that, you know, you are, if you aren't for protecting speech that you dislike, then you aren't for pre free speech. And so um, basically, we have seen over the course of the past decade, especially um, this contortion of people's perception of free speech. And What's just shocking to me is that the propagandists have essentially been able to manipulate people into thinking that free speech is a bad thing, is a dangerous thing. And um, it's just so astonishing to me that people would essentially um, accept a curtailment of their thinking, of their ability to express themselves um, for the sake of the quote and quote, greater good and um, the protection of the Ministry of Truth's narrative. And so, um, and I, I actually started noticing this happening. You know, of course, we have, you know, the 2016 election, things were really ramping up in terms of the propaganda and Trump derangement syndrome and all of that. And basically, you started seeing you know, more fact-checking sites popping up, and I call them fact-chokers. Um, and it basically was acclimating people to the practice of outsourcing their thinking to quote-unquote experts. And we just gradually saw the elevation of the experts, of the quote-unquote the science, um, and people deferring to them for their truths. And it just made me really sad to see people just rolling over and essentially being intellectually lazy and not bothering to pursue these, you know, questions for themselves and researching it themselves. And the fact that you have, um, you know, mainstream publications, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, um, Make, making fun of people doing their own research and saying it's dangerous to do your own research. Well, you know, that's what happens in, in a totalitarian society. They have to make people question their own intuition, their own ability to critically assess material. 
So they will essentially become mentally enslaved to whatever the propagandists pour down their gullets. <laughs> and so it's um, been a, a gradual process, but with COVID, it just ramped up to 11. <laughs> and um, they just keep turning the volume up further and further. And it's just, but the the benefit is that I think they have pushed it so far that it's becoming in almost you know, blinding, uh, glaringly obvious to anyone who still has eyes <laughs> that they are being manipulated. And once the media destroys that trust with the public, which if you look at the polls, it's just their trust levels are absolutely decimated. Um, you know, the mainstream, I mean, the public does not trust the mainstream media, legacy media. And they're starting to turn to independent alternative voices like Substack and ours um, to get their information. So, um, but basically, it's quite obvious that any authoritarian regime deploys the tools of censorship in combination with propaganda to essentially uh, craft a an artificial world, an illusion that people who aren't paying attention inhabit. But those anyone who questions is is essentially uh, stigmatized. And instead of the independent thinking being valued, it's demonized. And anybody who um, questions or thinks for themselves is a conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer, you know all of the name calling. That yep. goes on, and so the and name calling, of course, is a long, <laughs> you know, propaganda technique that has a long history, and it's because it always works, and people don't want to be called names, and so they'll shrink from their questioning if they're kind of in the middle and they don't know for sure, and um, you have to be, you have to kind of develop a very strong thick skin to be able to speak out about the truths that you're seeing that counter the narrative. Amen to all of that. I, I'm, I, I just want to quickly say that I totally agree with you that the powers that shouldn't be have overplayed their hand. And that is a source of, of, uh, of peace to me, knowing that they are, they have pushed too far. We're not necessarily seeing the fruits of that yet, but I, I think we're inching towards it. I am curious though, um, you just so eloquently laid out how a, a propaganda system can hap can exist virtually invisible. When you have an, had an opportunity to speak to someone who, for the most part, totally bought into and perhaps is still buying into the narrative of the past three years, I can speak for myself. I get I get a lot of defensive responses saying, "I'm not programmed. I'm not manipulated." But sometimes I get people hearing me. I, d I don't want to paint a picture that this is hopeless and that, that, um, that the truth can't win. So I'm, I'm just, before we move, I want to go a little bit more into Chomsky. Um, before we move to that, what, what in general is the response when you lay out just a cogent explanation like that? Um, well, I go back to when a friend of mine visited, um, I think it was November or around Thanksgiving of 2021. Um, and I say the date specifically because um, that matters in terms of the COVID timeline, because the vaccines had already been rolled out. And at the time, the um, 
I believe it was the five to 11 year old injections had just been approved. So anyway, I had a friend visiting um, and we hadn't seen each other for a number of years, um, but we've always been very close. She's um, a fellow reader, introvert. She had written a children's book that was focused on teaching um, children to not be controlled by their fears. And so I was very excited about being able to sit down and just talk with her about this. And she is also a a, a therapist. And so she's, you know, studied psychology. So she knows the psychological manipulation techniques and stuff. And so I sat down and I shared, I had written my own fairy tale, um, the vapor, the hot hat, and the witch's potion, which was my sort of encapsulation of what I saw occurring and my predictions of what will happen if we don't stop it. And it's, you know, essentially a dystopian fairy tale. And so she sat down and and read it. And then we just started to talk. And I it suddenly dawned on me that she was completely immersed in the narrative. And so for her, there was this painful cognitive dissonance that was just coming over her as I started to talk. And so I was trying to um, not be confrontational. I, you know, was trying to be very understanding of her position because the fact is she had just gotten her son injected, her five-year-old son. And so I could tell for her the concept that she had potentially just done something horrible to her son that could have fatal or injurious consequences is something that, you know, her, her affect immediately dropped. And it was just, it was very difficult for her to grapple with. And it's, you know, and I think that's why the denial just sets in because how does a parent who's done that to their child come to terms with that if they do start to look at the evidence? And so, um, you know, to her credit, we talked for, you know, almost an hour and I was basically just asking her, you know, why I was asking her why a lot of why questions. And if you go to my Substack, you'll see, I have, um, an article called a mostly peaceful depopulation. And those are the notes I wrote for my Corona investigative committee presentation last year. And I have a section called a retrospective in wise. And so that was for me, these were all the whys that I was starting, what I was asking throughout the process of the COVID tyranny rollout. And so I was asking her these, you know, why, what, what about this? What about that? And she couldn't answer. And, um, you know, but then she asked me, why would they do this? And, you know, I, when I said totalitarianism, uh, she just couldn't comprehend that. I think it was just, and all of this, you know, for someone who's immersed in the narrative, any of these questions that are raised just start sounding, you know, completely outlandish because for them, government is good. You know, they're doing this, you know, the vaccine companies suddenly have an about face and are no longer evil profit mongers. <laughs> they're, they're wanting to save the world and, you know, save our lives. And so, um, you know, she 
he had essentially been inculcated into all of that. And at a certain point in our conversation, she just said, you know, can we change the subject? This is making me uncomfortable. Um, which I, you know, was happy to do because I, you know, she very patiently listened to me for an hour. <laughs> um, and I just had hoped that I had planted some seeds. Well, you know, when I connected with her recently and tried to share, like, my interview with Meredith Miller, who is a holistic coach who um, I thought she would find it interesting because she talks about narcissistic abuse and all of these psychology-related topics, um, she, my friend said, you know, it just wasn't for her. And so I can see that even as much as I, you know, tried to do present that information in a loving way and give it to her so she could take the time to review it because I emailed her links afterwards. Um, she just, it, it was too much, it's too much for her to um, face, I think. Uh, it's a heartbreaking story. I mean, it, it's very illustrative and can be a teaching moment in that reminding us that nobody's nobody's a prophet in their hometown, right? Like it's it's that right. what you're talking about. And I, I pray for this, that she will hear similar information from a different voice and then be able to process it as opposed to perhaps the shame she felt next to someone that she knew well enough to be spending Thanksgiving with. But it's it's remarkable how um, effective the propaganda is. And I don't like to give so much credit to the parasites that run this to think that they're saying, oh, once we... we um, indoctrinate a certain amount, then it'll be self-policing and they'll have it all laid out. I think to some degree, um, the, the, the people in charge aren't as, I like, I have to believe that they're not as powerful as we sometimes say they are, but, right. but the consequences of their actions, whether they were intentional or not, are, are just, as you pointed out, are so um, deep and embedded and when you start talking about them in psychology terms, they, it's it's like an abusive relationship, and people just like the, like your friend. It's like I can't wake up tomorrow living in the U.S. as a citizen with with this perspective because it's a reality collapse. And where do I go from there? It's it's it it takes a certain um, uh, relentlessness to do that. And I, I want to quickly get back to Chomsky like that, with that segue, because you talked about name calling. You mentioned him briefly. W what I'll say about Chomsky, and I've been following him for a long time, and needless to say, if anyone is listening to this, they probably know that he came out in favor of the vaccination and spoke about um, isolating people who refuse to get vaccinated. Although he did yes. say nobody should be forced to get it. And I know you've, you've definitely covered it and you, you'll have stuff out soon. If we go back all the way to the first podcast I ever did, I talk about it, but he has been someone that will take the slings and arrows, you know, the name calling, like uh, uh, they try to stain us with, and they, in many ways, they're successful in staining us with names like anti-vax or transphobe, anti-Semite. And those labels take a lot of work to get off of you because it's yeah. you've been labeled that once. But Chomsky, to his credit, and particularly in the realm of, of free speech, has made some incredibly unpopular stances to, to stand up for a particular value. And we can't forget that. What he right. did recently, in my mind, is a uh, is I find it astonishing, but it's definitely despicable. But his body of work, as as you're going to touch on in an article very soon, 
is something that we could still, it's still a, a powerful teaching moment that, and it, I think for everyone involved, the ability for the people who, who buck the narrative to put aside their hatred for Chomsky over what he said about the jab and then learn from all this powerful stuff that he said, that's a really great skill because what a great starting point. Like I, oh, Chomsky, screw him. He said this, this, and this. Well, you know what? He has 60 years prior to that of material that you could really benefit from. So here's a challenge for you. Put aside that that emotional response for now, state uh, unequivocally that his stance on the vax was was despicable, but there's so much we can learn from, and I know you're going to touch on that very soon. Absolutely. And I just, you know, would love to introduce the 2023 Noam Chomsky <laughs> to the <laughs> 2000 Noam Chomsky. <laughs> and um, just, I, I think that he, there is a lot of wisdom to glean. And of course, you know, he he wrote the book, you know, Manufacturing Consent and um, with Edward Herman, I believe. And of course, um, that it, the accompanying documentary uh, revealed how um, you touched on the use of anti-Semite as a way of uh, staining and smearing dissidents. And that is something that is covered in the documentary in particular, um, because Noam Chomsky came to the defense of someone who was characterized as a Holocaust denier. And, you know, that is essentially, you know, practically the worst thing <laughs> that, that most people think you can be. And so for him to defend the right of this person to speak his views, even though he may find them despicable, I believe is a model for all of us to keep in mind. And, and you know, naturally, there's the ACLU example of them defending the right of the KKK to march and in Skokie. And, you know, so much today is about, you know, silencing, quote unquote, hate speech, and unfortunately, when you permit the government to define what is hate speech and to control what is permissible or not permissible, essentially they can decide that anything that threatens their power, their profits, their ability to control our minds is quote unquote hate speech. And so when you have those malleable terms set into law, that is when we as humans are lose our ability to essentially practice our birthright <laughs> to free speech. And um, we become mentally enslaved. And ultimately, that is a path toward um, digital and potentially physical enslavement as well. Yes, to all of that. Really, very well said, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, it's. Um, they've reinvented the definition of terms like herd, herd uh, immunity and vaccine just in the past couple of years. So it's like hate speech is just is a convenient tool in their hands. Now, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you in closing, um, for people listening, as as we close this interview, what do you most want? the people listening to know about you and your work and what you're going to be doing in the near and distant future? 
Hmm. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I would just say essentially one of the journeys that I've gone through is um, trying to liberate myself from, as I mentioned before, the cognitive biases, but also ideology and just kind of the trappings that keep me um, indoctrinated in a particular narrative. And I just encourage everyone to go through their own shedding process and looking at how they have potentially been victims of menticide. Um, I have a, a piece called um, Letter to the Menticide, a 12-step recovery program. And um, Can you I, that term for the listeners, please? Um, yes. So menticide is essentially um, the murder of the mind. And it is a term that was invented by Juiced Mirlu, and he has a book called The Rape of the Mind. And I quote it pretty extensively in the article I just referenced, Letter to the Menticided. And in that, I have um, 10 signs that you may be suffering from menticide. And then I have a 12-step recovery program to help people liberate themselves from those mental chains. And so, oh, were, were you going to say something? Please keep going. Um, and so essentially, I just want everyone to experience the joy of liberating their minds from these shackles that have been essentially attached to our brains from birth. And every institution that we pass through further reinforces those chains and builds upon them through layers and layers of indoctrination. And to free ourselves from those chains is a lifelong process. And it takes courage, and it takes humility, and it takes open-mindedness. And you know, just because those of us who are quote unquote awake have come to see our former indoctrination and are able to see through the propaganda now doesn't mean that we aren't susceptible to, you know, those cognitive biases still. And so we have to, and um, I think you and I uh, had a little bit of an exchange about this privately, but basically Noam Chomsky is a perfect emblem of that and that he himself no longer is able to see through his biases and it has been completely manipulated by the propaganda that he previously exposed. And so it is a lesson for all of us that we just need to be continually vigilant, um, constantly do self-checks, make sure that we aren't falling prey to the very things that we're trying to expose. Amen to that. I can't think of any better way to end this conversation. Margaret, Anna, Alice, thank you so much for being here and talking with me and the work you do. And there, listeners, there will be a bunch of links in the show notes to get you started if you haven't already discovered her work. But So Margaret, thank you so much. Thank you, Mickey. It's been a pleasure. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor.
Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. In our conversation, Margaret accurately pointed out that whoever is in power is suddenly not as concerned about censorship anymore. And an example of that, uh, 10 years ago this week, um, the 4th of July in 2013, I was at a protest slash rally because around that time was when Edward Snowden was in the news all the time. So we held this rally at the federal hall on wall street with the big, um, George Washington statue there. The rally was called Restore the Fourth. And of course, it was on the 4th of July, but it was about the Fourth Amendment. And I was out there with thousands of people that I would assume we would call leftists standing up against censorship, standing up for free speech, standing up against people eavesdropping and listening in and spying on us, our own country doing that. So 10 years later, everything has flipped. And as Margaret pointed out, it is a reminder. There, this is a teaching moment that even if you feel that you have awakened and you've got it figured out, never, ever forget to keep your guard up. <laughs> 